0: Thank you, Wendy. This morning, we enter our last sermon through this series, Journey of Faith, as we've been looking at several Old Testament characters and figures. Uh, God has been challenging us and, and certainly challenging me as we've looked at several of these characters and figures throughout the Old Testament. This morning, we look at the life of of a king, a king named Josiah. So this morning we see a journey of faith from King Josiah, and what we see King Josiah doing is leading in reformation. So the text this morning is in 2 Chronicles chapter 34, beginning in verse 1. If you have your Bible, you can turn there. If you need a Bible, there should be one in one of the chairbacks right in front of you, and you can find 2 Chronicles 34 on page 385 in the chairback Bible. Before we read the text, let me pray. Father, as we open your holy word, God, would you speak to us? Would you make known your word in our own hearts and minds? Would you uh, would you draw our souls near, draw near to us as we draw near to you, Lord, Lord, would you confront the sin in our lives? Would you, um, would you encourage us in, in, in walking in godliness and obedience to you? And Father, I pray this morning that as we listen and as we, uh, as we engage in your word, that you would open our hearts and minds and eyes to your truth. And now, Lord, I pray that the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart would be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. For it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. <clears throat> raise your hand if you've ever tried to run up an escalator that's moving downward. Okay? For the rest of you who didn't raise your hand, raise your hand if you've ever thought about running up an escalator that's moving downward. Right. If you, if you start to run up an escalator that's moving downward, you realize quickly that it's harder than it looks. It's harder than it looks to actually reach the top, and you quickly find out that progress, any progress that you make, is really slow progress, right? Now, you can make it up to the top, but it takes a little bit of time and quite a bit of effort. This must have been what King Josiah felt during the beginning of his kingship over Judah. King Josiah's leadership and message introduced radical reforms to the southern kingdom of Judah. But for all the reforms that King Josiah instituted, Judah would quickly fall after King Josiah's death. In fact, Second Chronicles 36, 15 and 16 says this about Judah after King Josiah's death. The Lord, the God of their fathers, sent persistently to them by his messengers because he had compassion on his people and on his dwelling place. But they kept mocking the messengers of God, despising his words and scoffing at his prophets until the wrath of the Lord rose up against his people, until there was no remedy. Spoiler alert here, right? No matter how diligently King Josiah tried to bring reform through policies and reestablishing Yahweh's worship in the land of Judah, he himself... King Josiah wasn't able to effect lasting change in the hearts of God's people. But this is exactly the point that we must see. His kingship points us forward to see Christ as the promised king who is powerful to reform our ways by first transforming our hearts. So this morning I want us to see that Jesus Christ is the one true king who alone affects true change in the hearts of his people. Follow along with me in beginning in verse 1 of 2nd Chronicles chapter 34. Josiah was 8 years old when he began to reign. And he reigned 31 years in Jerusalem. And he did what was right in the eyes of the Lord and walked in the ways of David, his father. And he did not turn aside to the right hand or to the left. For in the eighth year of his reign, while he was a boy, he began to seek God, the God of David, his father. And in the twelfth year, he began to purge Judah and Jerusalem of the high places, the Asherim and the carved and metal images. And they chopped down the altars of the Baals in his presence. And he cut down the incense altars that stood above them. And he broke in pieces the asherim and the carved and metal images. And he made dust of them and scattered it over the graves of those who had sacrificed to them. He also burned the bones of the priests on the altars and cleansed Judah and Jerusalem. And in the cities of Manasseh and Ephraim and Simeon, and as far as Naphtali in their ruins all around, he broke down the altars and beat the Asherim and the images into powder, and cut down all the incense altars throughout all the land of Israel. Then he returned to Jerusalem. Josiah's life demonstrates, I think, three truths that are specifically applicable for Christians today. The first truth that we see from Josiah's life and his kingship, his journey of faith is we see the godly life is concerned with advancing God's kingdom. The godly life is concerned with advancing God's kingdom. And what we need to see here is that personal reformation is necessary before cultural reformation is possible. King Josiah was a righteous king. He reigned over the southern kingdom for 31 years, from 640 to 609 B.C. Now, the northern kingdom had already been swallowed up by the Assyrians. And the southern kingdom would soon follow in falling to the Babylonians. They were about to experience God's just judgment because they had forsaken him. In fact, Jeremiah 2.13 sums up the times when God says to Israel, For my people have committed two evils. They've forsaken me, the fountain of living water. And they've hewed out for themselves cisterns, broken cisterns that can hold no water. You see, King Josiah was convicted over the nation's sin. He was a godly king who was concerned with advancing God's kingdom. And he saw the incompatibility between where Judah was and how they were living and what they were to be as God's people. And so verses 1 and 3 tell us that Josiah became king at the age of 8. Can you imagine? Any 8-year-olds here this morning? Raise your hand if you're 8. All right, you would be king over Judah, all right? Uh, Can you imagine that? (laughs) So at age eight, he becomes king. And then over the next eight years, he would grow in his knowledge of God. And by age 16, he began to seek the God of David. That is Yahweh, the covenant God. Verse two tells us that he did what was right in the eyes of the Lord. And he didn't turn from the right hand or to the left. In other words, he was a righteous man. In other words, he was righteous before the Lord. You see, Judah needed a reformation of the heart that penetrated deeper than the facade of worship practices and penetrated deeper than the facade of of, of political redesign. But ultimately, this was a reformation that King Josiah couldn't effect, because the reality is, Personal reformation is necessary before cultural reformation is possible. Parents, you've probably experienced this, at least on a micro scale. When your children act out toward one another, they do something that's hateful or hurtful, and then you discipline them, right? And that's the easy part. Disciplining them is the easy part. The hard part is turning their hearts from hatred and evil intent to sorrow and repentance. Do you know that you can't command a sorrowful, repentant apology? Tell your brother you're sorry. I'm sorry. Right? Give him a hug. Right? You can't command and you can't demand a heartfelt apology or heartfelt repentance. You see, what's needed for the children, for our children, your, for all children in the midst of that circumstance, what's needed is a reformation of their hearts. And so instead, we, we appeal to our children from Scripture, right? We aim for the heart by confronting sin and, and, and confronting that sin particularly that they're wrestling with, be it anger or jealousy or hatred and so on. And what happens is this gives us a bridge to the gospel in their lives and seeking to correct and and to shepherd and and draw their hearts unto God. And just as we see this demonstrated in in the lives of children, so it rings true in our lives as well. The godly life is concerned with advancing God's kingdom because our hearts and our minds are changed by the indwelling presence of God. The godly life isn't about being a good person or doing good things. Listen, it's about being God's person and about doing God's things. Growing God's people and engaging in God's work is the mission of the church. And we advance God's kingdom through discipleship, through evangelizing. And listen, this occurs expressly through the work of Jesus Christ. This is why Jesus tells Nicodemus in John chapter 3, a man must be born again if he's to enter the kingdom of heaven. Or this is why Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 17, write a familiar verse, Therefore, we are, being, we, we are a new creation. The old is gone, all things have been made new. And this is what happens when a person believes upon Jesus Christ. We are made a new creation. So how are the godly to be about advancing God's kingdom? Jesus Christ has shown us the way to God. Colossians chapter one, uh, Colossians chapter three, verses one through three, in fact, tells us how the believer is to live out this mission of reformation in the world. In other words, he's saying, I'm to set my mind upon the things above because my life is hidden with Christ in God. And in Colossians 3, verse 5 and verse 10, he tells us that this is a continual work in the life of God's people. In other words, Paul's telling the church, here's what you have to do in order to continually set your mind upon the things above. You must continually or perpetually put to death the earthly desires that is within you. What is earthly in you, he says, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, covetousness, which is idolatry. And then in verse 10, the counter of that is we are to put on the new self, perpetually, continually, putting on the new self, which is being, listen, renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. You see, this process of transformation and reformation is happening in the life of the believer every day. It should be happening in the life of the believer as we're coming to God and surrendering our hearts to him so that then he is working within us and turning our hearts toward him. Now, the point that we'll see through King Josiah's kingship is that personal reformation is necessary before cultural reformation is possible. So not only are the godly King, King Josiah was godly. He was concerned with advancing God's kingdom. And this is certainly the case for the church. Not only are the godly concerned with advancing God's kingdom, I think second truth, secondly, we see that the godly see the need for reformation and live out their convictions for the glory of God. Look at the second part of verse 3. In the twelfth year... He began to purge Judah and Jerusalem of the high places, the Asherim and the carved and metal images. Right? He chopped down the altars of Baals in, the present, uh, in his presence, and he cut down the incense altars. He, he cut these things down, he beat them into dust, and he scattered the ashes. He broke down the altars, verse 7 says, and beat the Asherim and the images into powder and cut down the incense altars throughout the land of Israel. Then he returned to Judah. Are to Jerusalem. Here's what I think we need to see here. That reformation requires the diligent work of confronting and tearing down idols. This is what King Josiah was doing as he went through the land. He was tearing down the idols and the altars that they had raised up to worship false gods. And I think it's telling that Josiah was personally present when the idols and the altars were being torn down. He was zealous for God. He was purging Judah and Jerusalem of their wickedness, and this was a responsibility that he wouldn't entrust to anyone else. If you flip over, you don't have to do it now, but write down 2 Kings 23, verses 5 through 20, and later go back and read that selection of Scripture, and you'll see the extensive reforms that Josiah engages in as he systematically cleanses the land. One author named John Bright, in his book, The History of Israel. He says this. It's, it's a somewhat of a lengthy quote, and so we're going to put it on the screen so you can follow along. Here's how he characterizes, uh, or the caricature, rather, he paints of, of Israel. He says, Pagan cults and practices, both native and foreign, were allowed to flourish with the rituals of the fertility cults and sacred prostitution being tolerated even within the temple. Divination and magic became the vogue in Jerusalem. The barbarous rite of human sacrifice again made its appearance to the god Molech. The nature of primitive Yahwism or Yahweh worship had been so widely forgotten and incompatible worship so long practiced that in many minds the essential distinction between Yahweh and the pagan gods had been forgotten. It was possible. This is the clincher. It was possible for such people to practice these rites alongside the cult of Yahweh or the worship of Yahweh without awareness that they were even turning from the national faith in doing so. You know what strikes me about the pages of history as I read the story of Israel and Judah, is you can see the, the incremental deterioration and desensitization of their society. They were increasingly inching further and further away from God. The leadership of kings became increasingly wicked. They introduced God's people to foreign idols until ultimately their worship became syncretistic, meaning they meshed the worship of Yahweh with the worship of other gods. Over time, there was a slow erosion of their worldview. And they lost sight of their distinctiveness as God's covenant people. And those things which should have abhorred God's people became the norm in their everyday lives. They had grown so desensitized to the immoral cultural activities and worship practices of foreign nations that they lost their distinctiveness in worshiping Yahweh altogether. So this is why King Josiah had to act. His faith and zeal for God stirred him so that he would live out his convictions for the glory of God. Now, the the dots are easy to connect. I can't overstate the deterioration and desensitization of, of the church in our country. And this goes far beyond the corporate worship gatherings that we gather for on Sunday mornings. In fact, our corporate worship gatherings on Sunday mornings showcase what I think is the epidemic that's befallen the church and our culture. For a large majority, church in America has become like a buffet line for satisfying our preferences and, and delivering entertainment. Now, I don't think that's the case here at Crosspoint. But, but hear me out when, when I say this. The case in point is we no longer view sitting under the proclamation of God's Word as absolutely necessary in our lives. We no longer view corporate worship gatherings bi-weekly or even weekly as necessary for enduring faith, right? Hebrews 10:25. We no longer view accountability to the church as authoritative and a determining factor in who we gather with and where we gather for worship. We no longer view spiritual direction from God's under-shepherds of the church, elders or pastors as necessary for shaping and directing our lives much less if we do consult give weight to their direction when making life-changing decisions to my point as I list only a few examples maybe even some here this morning might pull back and think man this is this is odd that's a little over the top this goes against my liberty i'm a free person I live in a free country. I, I can choose to gather with whom I want and where I want. I'm accountable to no one but God. I can make my own decisions. Thank you very much. To which I would say, that's exactly the point. This mindset is foreign to God's design for his people, the church. You see, the church is to be a people who live in a cult. The, the church is to be a people who live and serve God and, 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 and walk in unity and, and community. But we're a people who live in a culture that so impacted our foundational view of what it even means to be the church. That when biblical norms are presented to us, oftentimes we balk at the thought with a derisive dismissal. But the issue isn't just about our misconceptions regarding the church. No, you see, our great dilemma is is church as an event has become simply one more activity on our calendars. We don't view God's sovereign rule as the umbrella under which we live and move and have our being. And while it's tempting to make application between Judah and America at this point, the church is first where we must focus. Because the church, as First Peter chapter two, verse nine tells us, is God's chosen people. First Peter two, nine says we are a chosen nation, a royal priesthood, a holy people, right? Set apart for God's own possession. You see, it's not the idols of our country that hinder our worship. It's the idols of the church. It's the idols of our own hearts that truly and ultimately hinder our worship. And so hear me when I say, Reformation requires the diligent work of confronting and tearing down idols. You see, if there's to be a Reformation across our nation, it has to begin first with God's people. And so while we fight for anti-abortion legislation and fight to protect a biblical view of marriage and family and war against human trafficking and care for widows and orphans, we must realize that changing the policies of a nation will not change the heart of a nation because Josiah's 31-year reign in Judah proves it. He did everything right. Everything. Church, here's here's the truth. The greatest battle plan against the idols of our nation is the purified church, the bride of Christ. And as his history shows God will purify his church in one of two ways. He will either purify his church through a spiritual awakening where God graciously pours out his spirit on his people and his people are convicted and and they come to him confessing sin and repenting of it and pursuing him passionately and fully with all that they have. Or he does it through persecution where God purifies the church by removing those false idol worshipers. By bringing persecution upon His people or allowing persecution to come upon the church, God will then purify the church. You see, God acts for His glory and His godly ones will do the same. The church must rise up and live out our holy missional calling for the glory of God. This is what King Josiah was doing. And my prayer for the church, for our church, is that we would experience a spiritual reformation and that we would zealously live out Christ's mission in the world. And I pray that in our gatherings to worship Jesus Christ on Sunday mornings, we will be grounded in this zeal and longing to gather with God's people and to magnify the name of Jesus Christ, to exalt God and to worship Him. I want that to be the heart of why we come and gather But friends, we must first do the hard work. The hard work of tearing down idols and altars that are in our own lives. The third truth I think we see from this text is the godly seek to spread God's fame by exalting the worship of God supremely. I know we didn't read this, but look at verse 8. Now in the 18th year of his reign, when he had cleansed the land and the house, he sent Shaphan, the son of Azalea and Maaseah, the governor of the city, to Joah, the son of Joahaz, the recorder to repair the house of the Lord his God. What's he doing? He's repairing the house of God. Listen, reformation occurs when we turn our affections to God. He didn't just tear down the idols in the land. No, look at what he did in verse 8. He rebuilt the house of God. You see, when we tear down an idol, we must turn those affections to God. And as he does that, as he begins to rebuild the temple in doing so, Hilkiah, the high priest, found the book of the law. And when he found the book of the law, he read it. And he sent it to Josiah. And so in verse 16 one of his servants, the secretary, Shapen, he brought the book to the king and further reported to the king all that was commanded to your servants they are doing. And then he said in verse 17, they have emptied out the money that was found in the house of the Lord and have given it into the hand of the overseers and the workmen. Then Shapen, the secretary, told the king, Hilkiah the priest has given me a book. And Shapen read from it before the king. And listen to what happened. When the king heard the words of the law... He tore his clothes. He repented. He mourned that they had gotten so far away from God's worship, that they had lost sight of who God was and how they were to orchestrate and live their lives. And so in verse 21, he sends the high priest to Huldah, who was a prophetess, and she prophesied that Israel was doomed to fall but not until after Josiah died in peace. Verses 23 and 24 tell us this. And she said to them, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, Tell the man who sent you to me, Thus says the Lord, Behold, I will bring disaster upon this place and upon its inhabitants all the curses that are written in the book that was read before the king of Judah because they have forsaken me and they've made offerings to other gods. Let's skip down to verse 29, here was Josiah's response. <clears> 2 <throat> Chronicles thirty-four twenty-nine. Then the king sent and gathered together all the elders of Judah and Jerusalem. And the king went up to the house of the Lord with all the men of Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem and the priests and the Levites, all the people, both great and small, And he read in their hearing all the words of the book of the covenant that had been found in the house of the Lord. And and the king stood in his place and made a covenant before the Lord to walk after the Lord to keep his commandments and his testimonies and his statutes with all his heart and all his soul to perform the words of the covenant that were written in the book. This is the covenant that King Josiah made. And he called God's people to make the same covenant. And listen to how it turns out in verses 32 and 33. Then he made all who were present in Jerusalem and in Benjamin join in it. And the inhabitants of Jerusalem did according to the covenant of God, the God of their fathers. And Josiah took away all the abominations from all the territory that belonged to the people of Israel and made all who were present in Israel serve the Lord their God all his days they did not turn away from following the Lord, the God of their fathers. You know what stands out to me about verses 29 through 32 there is that in spite of knowing the impending doom that awaited Judah, King Josiah pushed forward anyway. He sought to spread God's fame by exalting him supremely above all in the midst of the whole nation. You see, Josiah attempted to bring reformation in the land of Judah. He reformed their worship. He reformed their policies. He reinstituted the Passover celebration. He did everything right. He tried to turn the hearts of God's people back to God. But notice what it says in verses 32 and 33 one more time. Then he made all who were present in Jerusalem and in Benjamin join in it. Verse 33, And made all who were present in Israel serve the Lord their God. All his days they did not turn away from following him. You see, he he made them. The tragedy was, for all the reforms that he instituted, Josiah was unsuccessful in bringing about lasting transformation. Listen to what Jeremiah says. After Josiah's death about the people of Israel and about the people of Judah. Jeremiah 3, verses 6 through 11. The Lord said to me in the days of King Josiah, Have you seen what she did, that faithless one Israel? How she went on every high hill under every green tree, and there played the whore? And I thought, after she had done all this, she will return to me, but she did not return. And her treacherous sister Judah saw it. She saw that for all the adulteries of the faithless one Israel, I had sent her away with a decree of divorce. Yet her treacherous sister Judah did not fear, but she too went and played the whore. Because she took her whoredom lightly, she polluted the land, committing adultery with stone and tree... Yet for all her treacherous for all this her treacherous sister Judah did not return to me with her whole heart but in pretense declares the Lord and the Lord said to me faithless Israel has shown herself more righteous than treacherous Judah King Josiah's story points us forward to see our great need for Jesus Christ, the sovereign king, who alone grants lasting transformation in our lives. Only he can change our hearts. You see, Colossians chapter 1, verses 16 and 17 speaks of Jesus' kingly rule by saying, For by him all things were created, in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, All things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. But the New Testament doesn't just speak of Christ as the sovereign king who holds all things together. It also speaks of him as the gracious king who stepped down out of heaven into his creation and became like us. Verse 19 of Colossians 1 says, For in him the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. Or another translation is, In him the fullness of deity dwelt in bodily form, and through him reconciled to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. And Colossians continues that though we were alienated from God, And hostile toward him, engaging in evil deeds, Christ reconciled us to God through his fleshly body by his death in order to present us holy and blameless before God. You see, it's this very work of Christ in our lives that transforms us both initially and continually. There's an initial transformation that when a person repents of sin before God and surrenders their life to Christ, this is called conversion. And the Holy Spirit of God is is granted to the believer, the new believer, as the seal of our inheritance for eternity. And then there's the continual reformation in our lives. And this continual reformation is is where we're transformed increasingly to reflect more and more clearly the image of Christ to the world. You see, all the external reforms are of no value if internal transformation is not first. When I used to work at Outback, one of my favorite desserts, this was back when I was in college, One of my favorite desserts to eat was called the Chocolate Thunder from Down Under. Now, if you've been there, you've probably had it. If you haven't, you should try it out sometime. But what would happen sometimes is the servers would see one. They would intentionally leave one of these hot brownies with ice cream and chocolate on it. They would intentionally leave it on the counter so it would begin to melt and it couldn't be brought out to the table. And so guess what would have to happen? They'd have to make another one and the servers would have to eat it. I never did that. Uh, I never left it on the counter, but I did eat it sometimes well every now and then the 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 back uh, the the cooks in the back the dessert uh, chefs i can 't remember what they 're called uh, they would um, they would kind of play a trick and, and what 's interesting is uh, if you take Crisco and you scoop it out in an ice cream scoop and put it on top of a brownie, it looks just like ice cream all right, and so they would do that and send one through the window for the uh, for the, the waiters or waitresses to eat, and as they'd start to eat it, they'd quickly realize that it wasn't the chocolate thunder from down under that they were used to. You see, the, the point is, you can dress it up any way you want, but in the end, it's not what it looks like that counts, right? It's what it tastes like. It's, what, it's what's internal. It's on the inside. So all the external reforms are of no value, hear me, church, if if internal transformation is not first. The first step is conversion to Christ. And once we become followers of Christ, then God begins this process of working in our lives to reform us and to transform us into the image of Christ. Listen, church, our purpose, I need to say this, our purpose is not to attract more people so that we can build a building. Our purpose, we can't lose sight of this church. Our purpose is to spread the zeal for the worship of God so that more people gather here on Sundays to magnify and exalt the name of Jesus. And this will only happen as God does a work of reformation in our hearts and in our lives. So the question is, What area of your life does God desire to reform? What are the idols in your life that hinder you from worshiping God freely and enjoying his satisfying presence? You see, just as Josiah removed the idols from the land and rebuilt the temple, so we must remove the idols from our lives, from the church, and build the church. This is Christ's mission in the world question we need to ask is, will we lay our idols down? Will we cut them down and beat them into dust like Josiah did? Is that our passionate zeal for following God? You see this this morning, Jesus Christ is the one true king who alone affects true change in the hearts of his people. I pray, I pray that God is doing this work of transformation in your life. If you don't know Jesus today, if you've not surrendered your life to him, the first step in doing that is repenting of your sin and confessing Christ as Lord, calling out to him, and he will save you. Surrender your life to him. The king, the true king, only he, only he can transform, bring about reformation in your heart. In your life. Church, are there idols that we need to lay down? Is there something hindering us from worshiping God? I'm going to pray, and you respond this morning as the Lord leads you. I'll be down front if you need someone to pray with you or speak to you about what it means to trust Jesus as Lord and Savior. But you respond as the Lord leads you this morning. Let us pray. Our Father, you are gracious to us. We thank you for your word and how we can see the need for reformation even in our own hearts and lives and how Josiah's story teaches us that we need reformation, but that we need an internal change before anything externally matters. And so I pray, Father, that you would teach us to turn our affections to you. I pray that you would grip our hearts and our minds. Lord, and that you would call us to surrender. And I pray, God, if there are anybody here this morning who is struggling to surrender their life to you, that you would give them strength and endurance. And Lord, that by your spirit you would lead them and direct them. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Would you stand